Hasn't this been an incredible time with prayer? I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed making some new friends at my table and uh, just meeting some new people and talking about prayer. Well, um, I don't have any pictures of the dogs tonight. I know, they have no idea they're celebrities, by the way. Um, I do have a, one story tonight about my husband who asked me, after I told a story about him last time, do I have any more dog stories? And I don't, not right now. But um, when I entered seventh grade, my parents asked me, um, which instrument would I like to play in the band? They didn't ask me if I wanted to be in the band. (laughs) See, I come from a very long line of very musically talented people. My grandfather was a professional drummer. He managed a band, my aunts, my brothers, my cousins. um, They all play instruments and they all sing. One of them sings professionally. So when they asked me the question, they presumed that I had this musical gene. But what was clear when I entered the seventh grade as I started practicing the saxophone hours upon hours is I did not have this gene. (laughs) And I can only hope it was a joyful noise into the Lord, but to my neighbors, it was not. It was not. But I did learn a few things through this seventh grade band experience. I learned that the jewels that we may take off of our head and put in front of the Lord, some of those come from parents who listen to seventh grade band performances. (laughs) You know in Isaiah 25 where it says all the tears will be wiped away? (laughs) That's that, not really. But I did real, I really learned something in band. (laughs) I learned how to read music and I learned what notes were and how long to hold them. And I learned about these things, this interval called a rest where we would stop and pause and not play. And at first I thought this was a really good chance to breathe, you know, playing a saxophone, but what I learned after time was that rests were strategically placed in the music to provide a a place so that the music could make sense. Silence existed to create a space, a pause for the notes on each side of the rest, and that space allowed the notes to take shape themselves together to become a melody. And like music, we need spaces of silence in our lives where we can pause and we can come face to face in communion with God. We call this communion prayer, where we meet a God that brings rest to our lives as we rest in Him. And in Him, He makes the notes of our life take shape and play through the larger melody of His heart. So our verse for this week is Psalm 62.1. It's in your personal study. And the NIV version reads that truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. And the English standard version of that same uh, scripture is for alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Robert Foster writes in his book on prayer that the literal translation from the Greek of pray always translates into come to rest. And as I thought more about what we've been studying these three weeks on prayer, I thought a lot about coming to rest in God in prayer. 
and how much I need to apply it to my own prayer life because I need more rest in God. My soul is thirsting for rest. And maybe as you've been in the study on prayer and you've been thinking about God, um, prayer, how God may have deepened desires in you to pray in old ways differently or maybe to pray in new ways. So looking back, we've covered a lot of ground on prayer. You know, in week one, Hillary spoke about praising God, how we can offer up prayers of adoration to build a foundation for our prayer life, where we take the focus off of ourselves and we start placing it on God, where in praise, God offers our hearts a closer place of intimacy towards him. And then Debbie spoke about listening prayer, attuning our ear to the word, to scripture, listening for God's voice, his will for our lives, and how God speaks through others' testimonies to help guide us, like that God's guides book speaks of grace. And she encouraged us to tune our ears to God because he's speaking all the time. And last week, Lori spoke about intercessory prayer, shifting ourselves from the gravity of our own needs to asking on behalf for others. The privilege and the miracle, really, to raise our voice to the Father and to speak out the very cries on our hearts for others that he's placed there. So this week, as we continue to talk about prayer, we're going to talk about specifically how do we apply prayer to our lives in, through a space, a pause, and a rest created by spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are mentioned throughout the Bible. Some of these include fasting, prayer, meditation, silence, solitude, worship, and fellowship, just to name a few. Yes, prayer is a spiritual discipline in and of itself, but it's important that we talk about it because we enter into it through many other disciplines. The Bible speaks of disciplines like meditation. In Psalm 119.15, the psalmist writes, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. We are to meditate on scripture. Or Matthew 6.17, when you fast, anoint your head. It's not if you fast, it's when you fast. Or Matthew 6.7, the Bible speaks about prayer. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles. Again, not if we pray, but when we pray. Some of us cringe at the idea of religious saying, do, do, do. We can hear it as duty for religion's sake, and that doesn't feel very authentic, so sometimes we can not want to check a box, and we avoid doing things at all. And some of us cringe at the idea of not doing, because we want to follow the disciplines, because it feels like we're moving closer to a knowledge of God. And that makes us more of something, or maybe just less of something else. If I'm honest, I've been both of those in different seasons of my life. I think we all have been. But neither is where God wants us to stay. The intent in following a discipline isn't expressly for religion's sake or to be ignored so we'll be more authentic. The intent in following a spiritual discipline simply stated is out of our love for God, we obediently choose to enter into a practice that draws us close to his presence, 
where we can experience him and know him and his will for our lives. Do you enter into practices that draw you closer to God's heart? How long has it been since you've really rested in God? Do you thirst to breathe? And I wonder what would emerge from our lives if we pause long enough to let our souls breathe. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about three of these spiritual disciplines, solitude, silence, and prayer. And they're evident in the story of the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19, and we'll look at verses 3 through 16 or so. And I believe as we consider these spiritual disciplines, we're going to see how God administers grace through solitude, how he how, sorry, how he shows his power in silence and how he restores hope in prayer. And I hope as we look at God's truth and the love that he has for us that we'll be encouraged in our own prayer lives. So first, let's look at how God administers grace in solitude. Can you turn this down just a little bit? I'm getting a little, thanks. In First King, if we turn to First Kings 19 in the Old Testament, it's the story of Elijah, like I mentioned, and he's fleeing from Jezebel. And I'm going to give you a super high level of the Cliff Notes version of this um, in 17 and 18. Um, as to why he's fleeing, I mean, I could really tell you it's because she wanted to kill him. That'd be super high level, so we're going to go a little bit lower than that. Um, Elijah, he's a prophet, and he's been called by God to show many different, um, to tell prophecies and to show miracles to this bad king of Israel who's ruling Israel and his name is Ahab. And Ahab has been leading the people with his prophets also and they've been worshiping false gods. And God said in um, 1 Kings 16 that Ahab did more to provoke God of, of the Ahab did more to provoke the God of Israel to anger than in all the kings of Israel before him. That's a lot. There's a lot of bad kings in First and Second Kings. So that's a pretty big statement. So God had Elijah announce that because of all this false God worship, there's going to be a drought and then a famine. And then he told Elijah to go hide for three years. And Elijah did that. He was, he was um, very obedient. Well, meanwhile, Jezebel and she is over about 400 of the false prophets. She's a bad lady. She killed all the other good prophets, and Elijah was the only good prophet left. Meanwhile, it's like a great story, Ahab, he's searching for Elijah these three years because he wants the drought to stop. He wants to bring him back so God will stop the drought because animals are dying, everything's happening, it's bad. Well, then Elijah, after three years, is told by God, go back. So he goes back. And God gives him these instructions. He says, pull all the people of Israel together. Get them all here. And bring all 850 total bad prophets together. And I want to share some news with them. So he did that. He had Ahab bring them. And they were there. And Elijah told the people of Israel, he said, don't worship. Don't walk in two directions at the same time. It's not possible. Do not worship God plus all these other gods. And the people of Israel were silent. They had nothing to say. So Elijah said, I'm going to show you the, the power of God. And he said, okay, false prophets, bring up your sacrifice. And I want you to burn it to the ground by your God, Baal. And 
They tried, no fire, nothing, nothing happened. So Israel set up their sacrifice, poured water over it three times, built a trench around it, and he praised God for turning the hearts back to himself. And, and then God not only burned up the sacrifice, he burned up the wood, the stones, the dirt, everything that was there, and all the water in the trench. And the people worshiped God and they went back to him. And then Elijah brought the 850 prophets before um, Israel and he killed them all with a sword. So Jezebel heard that he had done this and now she wanted to kill him. So by 1 Kings 19 verse 3, we see Elijah in verse 8. There he was afraid and he rose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and he left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down at a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. I think we can read this and some of us, sometimes we can say, Elijah... If you just look back at chapter 17, you were doing great. You're in God's will, you're praying, he was changing things, it was amazing. You know, just keep praying. But God uses some text in the book of James 5.17 to show us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours and prayed fervently. He's just like us. He's a man. He's not superhuman. Elijah had been following God's will, but it seemed now that God, in this circumstance, wasn't going to show up for him. It was just too much. And so he set off on his own, alone, doing his own thing. But he didn't have the strength to do it all. And so he collapsed down at the feet of God, and he said, that's it. That's all I've got. I've got no more. I am done. And I probably couldn't have done it anyways. You needed somebody else for this job. And God, rather than condemning him, covered him in grace through rest and relief and filled him up again. Can any of us relate to Elijah? Does that sound like a picture of what we might be going through in our lives at times? Where we're following God's will, we're praying fervently. We get to a situation that it seems like maybe he's forgotten about us or we're alone or he's not going to come through this time. But yet, we move towards him, and he surprises us with his grace. Maybe you're just realizing right now, you have struck out on your own. I've been there. Or maybe you're about to collapse under a broom tree in the relationship or whatever's going on in your life right now. Or maybe you can testify to another sister at your table what it feels like to fall into the arms of Jesus 
and be surprised by his grace. Well, I can relate. I can relate. I have been married now for five years to a wonderful man, and I have three fantastic stepkids. And then the last four of those five years, every year we've had some kind of event, a graduation, a wedding, things like that. Well, I had absolutely no idea that that was a warm-up for the spring. It's been incredible to watch them achieve, to fall in love, to start out their lives, and these milestones are amazing. But in the last 90 days, we've had a college graduation, a high school graduation, a wedding, a nephew's wedding, and a birth announcement. Yes, I'm going to be a Mimi. <laughs> I'm so excited. I know. It's not here yet. It's close. It's so fun. It's so fun. It's so exciting to anticipate others to watch joy in their lives and to live it with them. I mean, it's amazing. And there's been so many fun things to do. I mean, you know, you get to plan not just those events, but all the events around those events, like the showers and, and all that. And as wonderful as this is, it has been an incredible level of intense activity that I can't even really explain to you in these few minutes that we have together. There have been some things that I have known and I have planned and they have worked out okay. And then there are some other things that have happened that were unknown. Like the day I had to go stand in a bridesmaid's dress because she was out of town for the alterations, but I was the same height as her. <laughs> or repackaging a gift after I ran over it with my car. <laughs> and fortunately it was steak knives, so it was fine, but the package was really messed up. But what mostly impacted me was because some of these major events were so close together, my house was full of people for three weeks in a row. And I'm an introvert. And so <laughs> in the middle of these endless details and these errands and these questions to me, because you get a lot of questions, and all these people around and people everywhere in the house, I found that I was really, really struggling with time to myself. I mean, it was a drive-by at best with God in the morning. It started early and it finished late. And I started to really see that I had no space that I was making with God. And after a while, what I also saw was these fruits of the spirits we have, mine were drying up on the vine, the peace, the patience. And so about five weeks into the season, I walked downstairs and there was somebody standing in front of my coffee maker and they were facing me and they were asking me questions about the day, like what was going to happen and what needed to be done and what, yeah. And I looked down and they were drinking out of my favorite coffee cup. <laughs> and I turned into Elijah. Fortunately, not on them, but I walked out the door I walked out the door, y'all, and I walked out my kitchen door down the hill around the back because there's this basement level that we don't use, and I sat down on a chair, and I just put my head on my hands, and I said, this is too much for me. This is too much for me. I want to die. I'm probably not the right person for this job. <laughs> and I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not joking. After holding up seasons of what I felt like everything was on my shoulders, 
you know, when you're doing all these things, I finally let my heart collapse into God's arms. And I started to be aware in his presence of my striving. And I was sorry. And I finally started to rest in him. And as I drank in God for a while and rested in his grace, I was overcome with his goodness and how long of a season it had been. And as I sat there for a few moments, I made an awareness kind of came to me that no one knew where I was. And this was fantastic. <laughs> and I was alone with God, and this is my new sanctuary. See, solitude is a place where we're alone and put away distractions, but it's not loneliness. No one likes to be lonely. You know, you pick up a small child because they're crying because you're walking away. They don't want to be left by themselves. We have teenagers, and they go through high school, and they end up being fully known, and they're kind of the big person on campus, but they go off to college, and all of a sudden, they're in a big sea of people, and they're not known, and that can feel lonely. Because we have this desire that God put in our heart for us to be known, and it's ultimately to be known by him. Solitude isn't loneliness, it's a pl but it is a place but it's also really a state of our heart and where we're alone with God. There's a couple ways we approach solitude. I think sometimes God allows our fear, our circumstances, our striving to draw us into solitude with him. Sometimes I think he puts the desire on our heart for solitude, not from disobedience, but for us to seek his will, for us to know him and experience him. However we get there, we are met by something that always seems to surprise us. God's unabandoned grace pouring over us and strengthening us for the journey because it's always too great for us. Elijah was met by an angel of the Lord. And in this passage, an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament means Jesus. That's how the commentators refer to it. And so this representation of Jesus made him a meal. He cooked him breakfast. He made him water, and he personally attended him by touching him. And it made me think of Jesus in, in um, John 15 when he restored Peter. He cooked him breakfast, and then he restored him. It's like solitude, one-on-one -on -one with God, is this place in our heart where God's present. And his words to us are like manna that he's feeding from heaven, feeding us and quenching our thirst. See, Jesus can restore us by his grace because he's the ultimate grace given by God. When he stretched out his arms at Calvary and he said, God, I'll follow your will and I'll give up my life so you and I can be with them forever and we can commune again like we were supposed to forever from the garden to now. He did that for us. He takes on our disobedience of not following him in his will. And he covers it with himself. He is grace. So that's why Jesus has the power to say in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
because he actually can give us rest. As we turn our hearts to him, we can receive his rest in solitude. And that grace given in solitude, it can restore us, it can strengthen us, and we can better hear the power of his voice in the silence. Do we need that kind of rest today and strengthening and nourishment to go along the journey? That brings us to the next spiritual discipline, which is silence. How God administers power in silence. In the story of Elijah, I read, um, I kind of left off at 8, and I'm going to pick up at 9. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire was a sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped up his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. When Elijah um, went into the cave in this passage and he sought lodging, it says he lodged there, that is the modern day equivalent of a silent retreat center. He, um, silent retreats, well, silent retreats, he settled in to hear from God there and that's what you do in silent retreat center, but silent retreats can be individual, they can be group, they can be directed, um, they're typically directed in a cadence of prayer if you go somewhere where there's a structure. And so they might have morning and afternoon and evening prayer. Um, but it's a cadence that is to bring back focus to God. That's the purpose in it, that we spend time there. It's to stop talking, to set aside all distractions, and to humbly listen to God in silence. Because he really is talking all the time. I went on a silent retreat recently, because I needed to, and when I was telling my husband about it, that I was going on a silent retreat, and I explained that, you know, we're going to be rooming in these, our own little simple room, and um, just a bed, really, and a desk, and, but we'll be in the same facility, and we'll partake meals together, but you don't talk at meals. Um, you just go there, and, and you're with one another. He... Um, he looked at me and he said, well, how are you going to pass the salt? <laughs> and that's a really good question. Um, but I did go for a few days and, and I didn't use the salt. But So I went there and it was a lot of things. It, I would encourage you to go if, you ever, if that's ever desire on your heart or even to do one individually because when I went for three days, I experienced this period of restlessness. And then I experienced this period of exhaustion where I needed to rest. And then after a while, I 
found this quiet rhythm with these prayer times of being able to walk out in the woods and hear and talk to God. And so I can, I can when I read this passage later, um, I realized, you know, this is what's going on with Elijah. This what's happening with our bodies and they're displaying in Scripture is really what happens as we approach silence and solitude with God. We, we need to rest physically, and that's not something that um, we should you know, beat ourselves up about. That's actually part of the process of bringing our body down to where we can hear and listen to God. And so when I came home from this experience, I, my husband was awesome. Um, he, you know, just, and I really explained what my experience was there. But I, I could explain my experience to you, but it's kind of like, you know, you have an experience with a friend and telling me about it, it's, it's hard to do. But what I can tell you is I can testify that God does ask questions. We do hear questions from God when everything's quiet because he is talking all the time. And in this text, um, God asks a question to Elijah. In verse 9, he says, what are you doing here? Well, God knew where he was. God's omnipotent. And he knew how I got here, so why did he ask the question? Well, I think God asks us questions sometimes because he wants us to answer the question, right? And the purpose in answering the question is for Elijah to open up his heart to open up his heart and show what was on it. He wanted to, God wanted to hear his heart. He wanted to hear all of it. And God wants to hear our heart too. When we sit alone in silence with God, he wants everything. He wants it all. And as we can see in scripture, Elijah's heart was fear, it was anger, it was confusion, it was frustration. And he had a broken belief that everything was on his shoulders. He was the only one left. Kind of like us, huh? We have a lot going on in our hearts that God so wants to know. And he's safe. And he wants us to pour it out. And when we humbly sit before God and we open our hearts to him, it's here in that silence that he starts to administer his power to transform us. When I collapsed in my chair in my new backyard sanctuary, I could begin to rest and meditate in God's word. And what I heard was, Amy, why are you here? And I thought the answer was obvious. But what I discovered was, as I thought about it, and I really got honest with God, I was carrying a broken belief, too, that God wasn't going to show up, that I had everything on my shoulders in this season of life and that he wasn't going to come through. See, when the pressure's on, we don't operate from our carefully constructed belief system up here. We operate from our heart. I can quote truth. I can pray. I can tell you I need to pray. And I can tell you that God loves me. But when the pressure's on, my heart shows through. And God wants that heart. And God, in his mercy, allowed that pressure to draw me to himself in solitude where I could start to hear his voice in the silence. Elijah stood in the intensity of the wind and the earthquake and the fire. But when God whispered, he heard it. And that's what made him pull up his covering 
over his face because he was in awe of God's voice. We can feel shaken to the core by fear of what's going on in our lives, of what might happen to our kids, in our jobs, in our marriages, in our futures. And these are real, don't get me wrong. But our God can speak a still word that when the power of his voice is heard by us, we are, not, we are drawn and not shaken. We are stilled, no longer in fear, because everything is obedient to him. And I think we all need to remember the power of his voice and be encouraged that he's talking all the time in this power. We need God's word to touch our hearts, to change us, to teach us, to renew us. And desperately, we need to be alone with him and listen in the silence so we can be restored and we can continue on our journey. So that brings us to the last spiritual discipline, which is prayer. God administers hope in prayer. In verse 15 and 16, It's written, and the Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi. And you shall anoint to be king over Israel and Elisha, the son of Saphat of Abhomohola. I really did practice these earlier. You shall anoint to be prophets in your place. God loved Elijah with his grace. He restored him and he settled him in the power of his voice. And now he gave him direction for Elijah's voice to go. Elijah to go. And Elijah responds from a humble heart now. And he's obedient to go. He's told to go a certain way and where to go. And God was very specific about who he should go to and what he should do. Because God knows what he was made for. He also sent him back out of solitude because he couldn't live there forever. He needed to go back to his life. Well, God knows us too. He knows what's going on in our lives. And so, are we believing this hope when we pray? You know, do we believe that he knows the purpose that he's created us for, and who he wants us to be? Are we believing that right now? He knows we're made for fellowship, and we need to be out encouraging and praying with one another in community. So when we pray, that's the hope that we need to pray, is because God knows who we are, who he created us to be, and what he created us to do more in what he's doing for us or what we're asking him for, but the hope is it lies in him and that trust. So I planted a little tree in this mulch bed that's right in front of the little chair that I have now in my new sanctuary. And I escape, I mean, I leave and I go water this tree about an hour every day right now. <laughs> It might need more water. I don't know. But even with all this rain, I, you still have to run a hose on a new tree. Because <laughs> I learned this. I learned this from the people who you buy trees from. They said that if, when you have to put the water 
on the tree and really drench it because the roots chase the water. And so if you water it lightly, the roots chase up to the surface and they're not going to find water there in the long term. But if we water deep, we train the roots of the tree to chase down to the source. And the deep roots are protected down there and they can support the tree. Well, God's given us spiritual disciplines in his word to help train our hearts to stop chasing to the surface, but to pause and rest in him and to drink in living water at the depths of God's heart through prayer. We need his grace in solitude. We need to know his power spoken over our hearts in silence, and we need to live in his hope as we pray. I have recently felt very grateful to my parents as they showed up to all those seventh grade band performances to um, listen to me play. And, you know, Jules in the Crown or, or not, you know, they listened to some shrill performances, off key, God bless them. But, and I truly believe as we commune with God in prayer and we sit in his presence, that he's like a great dad sitting in the audience of a seventh grade band performance, hanging on every note his kid is praying. He's hanging on every word of our prayer and thought that you share with him, not because we're good, but because he's good. And so as we wrap up this series on prayer, my prayer is that we've heard from our good God encouragement about our prayer lives and that the pieces that touched us, that resonated in our hearts, that touched godly desires, that those become a regular rhythm of prayer so we can continue to know him and we can abundantly live through him. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are good. And God, that you listen to the voices of your children every single note with expectant waiting, God. Draw us close to you, Lord. Bring us to places where we can rest in you. We ask for these opportunities. We ask for the distractions to be taken away, God. And we ask that you renew our hearts in a way that we can speak in love and grace to others. We can encourage others to come to rest, God, and that we can live fruitful lives where we are out making disciples of others, God, in a way that honors you and glorifies you. We thank you for all the good gifts that you have for us, Lord. Amen.